Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse uh, 57 here in just a moment. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And uh, we're grateful you've joined us as uh, Dana described it well, the journey that we're on looking at the Gospels and learning about who Jesus is, what the Gospel is, and how it affects each and every one of our lives. In week three of our series, uh, two weeks ago, Matt Gilchrist, our missional impact minister, brought a message on the promise to a man named Zechariah that he would have a son. Zechariah was a priest, his wife Elizabeth, they were elderly, and that they would have a child, and this child would be uh, the promised one that would come and set the way for the Messiah. This would be what God had been speaking about. And we're going to conclude that story uh, two weeks later by looking at the passage in Luke, where Luke tells us how this all played out and some of the things connected to it. While we do that, I want to talk to you about, and I hope this isn't a bummer, I got some looks first hour like maybe I was the Grinch, and uh, I can be, I just don't want to be today, uh, but talking about Christmas, have you ever noticed that Christmas has such high expectation and anticipation? And unfortunately for some of us, we set the bar so high that what we want Christmas to be, that it could never meet that. Now I've confessed before, it's a part of the flaws in my personality, that I hate opening presents in front of people because I can never match their anticipated response. I'm never going to appear as happy or act as joyful as they want me to, even though inside I'm really happy. They just look at me like, you hate it. Now, that's how I look about everything. I can't help it. So in, in light of all of that, the highs of Christmas and the lows of Christmas are hard on people. Counseling centers get filled the weeks around Christmas because family is hard, life is hard, and it just seems like no matter how much we work, we can't always create that Norman Rockwell picture that we want to live in. And so instead of making that a bummer, what I want to tell you about is when you understand Christmas and you understand Advent, what you're going to be able to understand is that God takes the high anticipation of Christmas and he brings it into our reality. And it is satisfying. It's worthwhile. And today's story from the Gospels is one of those that will show us the promise of it. Now, you know, there are great moments. We, we read in the Bible like peace on earth and goodwill to all men in whom God's favor rests. And we think, I'll have some of that. And then there's parts of the holiday that we know we're not going to enjoy. Like, why people put vegetables in jello? Why? <laughs> why would you put carrots in jello? Stop. I mean, I know you're, tr- you're tricking your kids. We can see. Anyway, so there's highs and lows. So the reality of what we want isn't always a Norman Rockwell picture. And Christmas balances those two really well because God took the high anticipation of peace on earth and he brought it into our jello realities. And he appeared and lived with us. Let's read the text today. Verse 57 of Luke 1. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe, 
And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I'd like you to focus on verse 66 with me at the conclusion of that verse to see where we're going today. And the Lord's hand was with him. This is the predominant point I think Luke is making in telling us this story. As Matt introduced the promise, we now see the fulfillment of the promise. And at the conclusion of the fulfillment of the promise, what we hear being said is, and the Lord's hand was with him. So I'm going to give you two big points this morning and build on each one of them. The first point I want you to go with me on and as we consider the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John is don't miss the hand of God all around you. This is what the gospel leads us toward. We can easily turn the gospel into what do I get instead of what do I get in on. And I want you to not, not miss the hand of God all around you. So this could be about an elderly woman named Elizabeth who becomes pregnant and is filled with joy. It could become about a priest named Zechariah who's honored by God for his faithfulness and is also given a child that brings his entire family joy. It could be about John, who would become known as John the Baptizer. It could be about his story and the work that he would do, and those would all be correct. But none of those make any sense if this story isn't about God first. Because without God, there is no baby. Without God, there is no priesthood. Without God, there's not a barren woman who's blessed with child. Are you with me? Now, I know it should shock you to come to church and have the preacher tell you that every story in the Bible is about God. But the reason I feel we need to talk like that is because we can make every story in the Bible about us. And we've lost the gospel. It's about who God is, what God's doing, and how you and I get to be a part of it. Now, there is, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, there is a place for us in the story. But don't think for a moment that your place in the story makes you the center of it. The gospel is about a God who sent his son for all mankind to establish his kingdom and to forgive us of our sins. See, Luke wants us to know that the hand of the Lord was certainly with them, just as he had promised he would be. Every passage reveals something about God. And when we realize something <clears throat> excuse me, about God, we learn something about ourselves. And we become aware of this. Luke is reporting the movements of God within the people of God for the purposes of God. So the gospel has to be about God first because for 400 years, and Matt pointed this out two weeks ago, for 400 years, God has not spoken. There's not been a prophet. There's not been an angelic visitation that we're aware of. There's been no voice of God to his people. 400 years. And if every generation is considered 40 years, Ten generations of God's people have gone without him saying a word. And here's what I want you to notice. And yet they still believed. Zechariah doubted for a moment, but he, he trusted God because it had been 400 silent years. So I ask you a question that I think is important for every one of us to wrestle with. If God did not speak to you, for the rest of your lifetime, if God did not move in your life, if God did not send you a vision and he did not speak to you, he did not respond to your prayers, if that happened and for the rest of your lifetime, do you have enough evidence within your life to indicate he's still worth worshiping? One of the reasons Zechariah was powerfully used was with all of the man-made reasons to believe that God no longer was relevant, he still believed. 
So we have to ask ourselves within this story, do we believe in the hand of God enough to be looking for it? And if we can't find it, remember what he's done to remind us of who he is. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though they'd been barren their entire lives and wanted a child, they trusted the Lord and they had a child. Can we worship a God that will remain silent for seasons that serve his purposes? So if we understand that we're not to miss the hand of God all around us, that this is God's story, then the second point is where we enter into it. Don't miss our role in this story. Now, for many of us, if I may, it seems that we fall to one of two positions. We believe it's all about me, or we believe it's only about God. And if it's only about God, then God's going to do what God's going to do, and I'm just going to sit back and take the benefits of it, but never really invest in it. And if it's all about me, then I'm going to become my own God, and I'm going to do whatever I want because it makes sense to me, hoping it's good enough. And I'd like to move all of us back to the center of the gospel, where it's all about God, and he's invited us into the story. And this makes more sense to me of Zechariah and Elizabeth and a young man who would grow up to be John. You see, in Israel, just like in our country, and in the days of Jesus, just like in our days, birth is a big deal. It's an important thing. As the days arrive toward uh, uh, the pregnancy coming to fruition and the child being born, friends and family gather. I had a, a wonderful conversation with a, a friend here at the church who was going to go with us on the trip to Israel. And, and I said, are you still going? And he smiled at me. He said, well, we were until we found out that our daughter is pregnant with twins and she's due about the time we're in Israel. Well, I knew why that decision needed to be made. Because you just can't send a telegram from Israel going, hey, congratulations, can't wait to see them. No, you're going to be there when those children show up. Now add to that the dynamic of an elderly couple who had never had children and wanted them who find out they're pregnant. That might raise the bar of expectation and joy. Very similar to you, you might know a couple who's in their uh, late 30s or early 40s and have never been able to have children and they find out they're pregnant. That, that pregnancy is not any more important than the pregnancy of a 22-year-old couple who's been married for a year and a half and find out they're pregnant. But it's different. It's exciting. And because this may be the only child they get to have, there's probably going to be a bigger celebration. And they all gather together. And the neighbors come. And they hear the story of how an angel appeared to Zechariah and told him, your wife's going to become pregnant and this child is going to play a role in what God is doing in our world. And there was great anticipation. They knew this child would be unique because an angel told him that he's going to arrive and God has a special plan for his life. And Zechariah and Elizabeth knew this child was going to be special. There was lots to celebrate, right? Verse 65 says they were filled with wonder and joy. Verse 66 says they ask a question. What then will this child turn out to be? Have you ever done that with your kids? Or possibly your grandkids? Or just some little thing you're holding? Now, I, I shared this first hour, and, and I don't, I love when babies are born, and we find out about it, and if everything's good, and it's comfortable for the family, uh, my wife and I like to go, and it drives me nuts when we go in the room, because here's what always happens. We're not in there 30 seconds, and one of the parents will say to my wife, so sexist, they'll say to my wife, do you want to hold him? And I'm across the room going, I do. And Heather's very generous because she will hold the baby for a little while and then she'll hand the little football to me and I get to go against the wall while they're all yapping and I get to just look at that child and these thoughts enter my mind just like they did with both of my sons. I wonder what they're going to become. I wonder what they'll do exceptionally well. I wonder what they're going to be horrible at. 
I wonder how many tears their parents are going to cry and how many times they're going to laugh out loud with great joy. I wonder what's going to become of this story. It is natural for us. Do you know part of worship is this concept of adoration? To adore something. We all know how to adore something when you hold a baby. You notice its little nose and its foldable ears and you, you look at her and you think, she has no eyebrows. This thing's that I think of when I'm holding a child. <laughs> but the whole time I wonder, what are they going to become? And, and is it going to be a good life, a sad life, a powerful life? Are they going to be famous? Or are they going to just be a person that just lives their life really well and nobody really notices them, but they, they make a difference? Are you with me? Do you know what worship is? It's not singing, although that's part of it. Worship is just simply holding God and staring at him. It's thinking, who is he? What, what has he done? Look at all the amazing things he's done for people. How could he love me so much? We know how to worship when we hold a baby. And so they're all asking this question of Elizabeth and John. I wonder what this child's going to become. And if verse 65 says, they had joy and wonder at this birth, then how much greater should our joy and wonder be because we know the rest of the story? We know that this child would preach powerful truths and not always be popular. We know that he would leave his mother and father's home and he would live in the wilderness, that he would pursue the Lord and live a very, very barren existence. We know that he would baptize Jesus and baptize hundreds, if not thousands, and that he would call them to repentance, that he would make way straight the way of the Lord. We know that he would make this huge investment, and then we know he would be arrested by politicians for speaking out the truth, and that he would be beheaded for a crime he did not commit. We know all of his story, and we know that he would prepare the way for the one who would come, the one who would live. We talked about this last week, and I want to say it again. It's that important, that you may dismiss the incarnation as poetic, but I'm telling you, if Jesus was not here physically to die and take the punishment of our sins, we would not be forgiven. So we know he really lived not figuratively, not kind of lived. He really lived. He really died. He was really born again and raised from the dead. That he came to life one more time. And all of that imagery, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are what we symbolize in immersion. To die to self, to rise cleansed to God in a new life. And all of this beauty, we know, if their joy and their wonder was so great Wondering what he would become, how much greater should ours be when we know that this young man born to this old couple would announce to the entire world, behold the Lamb of God, when Jesus came over the hilltop. So I want to tell you three things about how you and I can get in this story and how we need to know our role because it all goes back to God. First of all, God's promises are all real. And I, if you're taking notes, I want you to, to not just focus on the word real. I want you to understand the word all. There are believers, people who believe in God, who believe some of God's promises, but not all of God's promises. And I'm going to speculate this morning, if you don't believe that God is always true, then he's never true. So all of his promises are real. We see this. When Mary found out from her angel that she was going to be pregnant, she was told that Elizabeth was also pregnant, her, her old cousin, that this older woman was pregnant. And isn't it interesting, why would the angel tell Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant too? 
And here's the truth I want to share with you. I don't think it's accidental that Mary was told about Elizabeth. Because when God calls us to obey, he calls us as individuals to obey. But he always places us in communities like the church where our obedience is helped. God didn't make Mary go along with this. She was willing to. But when she showed her willingness to obey, he placed her in a community. So you have this old woman who's pregnant. And I hope that's not an offensive term. I want to show you the, the dichotomy between the two. You have this old woman who shouldn't be able to have a baby who's pregnant. You have this young girl who shouldn't be having a baby because she's never had sex. She's pregnant, and God puts them in community. And for three months, Mary has a place to go to. She has a woman who's experienced what she's about to go through, six months pregnant, and Elizabeth can mentor her and talk to her and share with her. Have you noticed that Luke is showing us that God puts us into communities so we can obey with strength? He puts Mary and Elizabeth together. He takes two fathers who have a large responsibility. You have a father who has to raise the last Old Testament prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. He'll need to be instructed on the teachings of the Messiah. And so God gave Zechariah this responsibility. And then you have this other man over here named Joseph, and he's, th- he's only got to raise the Son of God. Not a bad task. How do you discipline that kid? So he's got Mary and Elizabeth journeying together, and Joseph and Zechariah are going to have similar experiences. And he's bringing all of these stories, John's, and Jesus' story together. Luke's showing us that even when God calls us individually to obey, he's calling us in community. And we can't miss that. Part of our story will be found in community. It won't be found in our separate lives. Luke 1, 57-58. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbor and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. It's very important when you see verse 57. Don't bypass this too quickly. When it was time. Now that may seem like just an incidental statement. She was nine months pregnant. Her water broke. It was time. Yes, physically you can make that distinction. But I think there's something even deeper to it. When it was time for what? For the last Old Testament prophet. Now I know if I'm causing you some consternation over that, let me explain. He is an Old Testament prophet even though he's found in the New Testament. I get that. He's an Old Testament prophet because he is prophesying the coming of the Messiah and the gift of the new covenant that will come through the Messiah's blood. So he is the last Old Testament prophet. And when it was time for the Elijah to come before the Messiah, to prepare the way for the Lord, when that began, the moment in time talked about in Galatians 4.4, when the timing was perfect, Jesus came. That God started his redemption of all mankind with Elizabeth's pregnancy. And this promise was true. 1 Kings 8, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord according to all he had promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he promised. The the Bible wants us to know something that we can easily forget. Every promise of God will come true. All promises are real. And so don't just take pieces of God, as if that's enough. Take all of it, because it will all come together. As Matt talked about two weeks ago, we see the promise here. It's all real, it's all true, and it came together. In fact, in verse 72, if you still have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, if you look at verse 72, when Zechariah breaks forth in praise, 
Some of his words say, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Zechariah said he did exactly what he told me he would do. And that's a testimony that we can all share in community. God has been faithful. God has been good. And church, God's not just good when you're healthy. God's not just good when you graduate. God's not just good when you have a a good financial year in your business. God is good when all of those things aren't true. Because his goodness, let's remember, if he remained silent, or another way of saying it, if he never did another good thing for you, has he done enough? It's the heart of our worship. You see, God promised salvation to all those who call on him. He promises that whoever comes to him, he will receive. He promises that when we confess our sins, he will forgive them. He promises to give strength to the weak. He promises to give wisdom to the ignorant. And he promises to give blessings to those who ask. And all of those promises are real. And every single one of them will come true, even if it takes 400 years of silence for them to happen. The second reason we can get in on God's promises is not only are all of his promises real, but his purposes are gracious. God enjoys. He finds delight. In fact, in Ephesians 1, it says, he finds good pleasure in blessing us. This is why he does what he does. Verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to him to circumcise a child, or they came to circumcise a child, rather, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Now, let's pause for a minute. How would you have reacted in the birthing room or in uh, the room in the hospital when they brought you your baby for the first time if your family had gathered and told you they were going to name the child for you? Have you noticed this is what's happening here? They come in and they say, she says, we're going to name him John. They're like, no, 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 we don't like that. Excuse me? Get out of my room. (laughs) In fact, leave now. I think the woman who just went through nine months of pregnancy and just went through labor probably doesn't need to be told by anybody what she ought to do. She has a right, right? So you have this moment, and the mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. Listen to the gall of these people. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to the father. At that point, Elizabeth should have pulled out the whip and cleared the temple. Anybody with me on this one? At that time, I'm like, you can ask God himself. The name's John, okay? So anyway, they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Everyone's (laughs) astonishment, their bitterness. God is gracious. Well, why would I say God is gracious if that's our text? Because here's what I need you to know. God doesn't name everyone, but when he does name somebody, he's telling us something. Think about that with me. God doesn't name just anybody. But when he does name somebody, he's telling us something. John is short for the word that means Jehovah is gracious. It's, it's an elongated word that they shorten to John, but it means God is gracious. If you take the first part, Jehovah, and then you take the last part, his grace, why did Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, why did they want their son named John? Because here's a woman who wanted a child and couldn't have one, and God gave her a child. He's what? gracious. And here's a man who wanted a child and his wife is blessed with a child. And not only is he going to have a child, but he's going to have a child that has purpose and calling and a a child that's going to be used by God. And Zechariah says, no, no, we're going to name him. God is gracious. God doesn't always name people, but when he does, he's telling us something. In fact, David Platt, uh, in a book I recently uh, read or read this fall said, 
that if you look at the plan of redemption, you're going to notice these things. Zechariah's name means God remembers promises. Elizabeth's name means God is faithful. John means God is gracious. Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. Are we picking up here? God doesn't always name people. But when he named John, he was telling us something. When he named Jesus, he was telling us something. He was telling us that I am doing my work. Don't miss the hand of God. And don't miss your chance to get in on it. Because his promises are real. His purposes are gracious. And lastly, his powers are wondrous. It's found in verse 64. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Immediately. One of the key words in this. Luke uses this word. When you read Luke's writings, you're going to notice that Luke uses the word immediately. Remember that Luke was a physician. So when he's describing a miracle, what he likes to point out, at least with consistency, for the most part, is he points out that when Jesus said, get up, the guy immediately got up. When he touched the person's tongue, it immediately was loosened. When, when, they, when he wrote the word John and was obedient, immediately this tongue that could not speak for nine to ten months was now speaking and the first words out of his mouth were praise. It doesn't matter how long God has been silent. When he speaks, we speak. We have something to share with the world. You see, this story's not about me. It's about God, but he lets me be a part of it. The gospel is not just about what I get from God. The gospel is about what I get in on with God. And he lets us be a part of this wonderful story. Verse 65, 66 says, The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with them. So how does the story of this couple blessed by God with a child, and this child who would go on to do a powerful work to make straight the ways of the Lord, to prepare the path of Jesus into our culture? Well, the truth of the matter is, you and I are not called by God to prepare the way for the Lord. But we are called by God to prepare the way for those who don't know him. Do you see the difference? John was called by God and set apart by God to come into the world and announce that the Messiah was here and he would be making his appearance. And when he came to be baptized, he called out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what John's role was, to prepare people for Jesus coming. And you and I are not called to do that. Because that's already been done. We are called, however, to prepare the way for those who don't know him. To love our neighbors. To turn the other cheek. To not demand our rights. If, by doing so, we can lead someone to the presence of the gracious, wonderful, promise-keeping king. And this is what we've been called to do. To get in on the story. So that when Jesus does return... And he does call his own to himself. He says, my sheep know my voice. And I call and they come. That when he calls names, there will be people who don't know that day's coming. They don't understand who Jesus is. They believe that the gospel is go to church and be told how to live. But they don't understand worship. They don't understand who he is. They don't adore him. They don't spend time pondering that he can be trusted, that he is true, and that he is powerful. 
That's why we're here. We're not here just to get a, you know, this huge benefit of going to be wherever heaven is with God in that day. Our benefit is that we get to invite people to go with us by introducing them to Jesus. Where Zachariah and Elizabeth's story is powerful, it, there is no story without God. Where John's story is even more powerful, there's no story of John without God. And where our stories may or may not be powerful, we have no story without God. For those of you that are hurting here today because it seems like it's been 400 years since God's talked to you, 400 years since he's moved in your presence, some of us hold a bitterness because we've prayed a prayer that our folks would not divorce or that so-and-so would be healed. And, and we've lived a long time with this resentment saying, I hear my preacher telling me God can be trusted, but I don't see evidence of it. I ask you, I beg you, adore him. Spend time listening to what we're talking about and ask yourself the question, if God never did another good thing for me, has he not done enough to earn my love, my respect, and my faith? Because the world says, what's he done for you Lately, if you pay attention, you may notice. And if you pay attention well enough, you may get in on it and receive what he's offering you. He's saying, come be a part of my story. Like Zacharias and like Elizabeth, I want to use you. And you may be world famous or you may be just another name in the Bible that nobody knows your story, but will you let me use you for something greater than you've ever imagined? That's what Advent is about. A Jesus who said, I'll go. And so God sent him. Will we respond the same way with I'll go so others will know who he is? Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.